Welcome to the World Art Now podcast, exploring the world through the material culture of its people, in association with Michael Backman Limited. I have written a lot of books over the last few years, and I'm also a dealer in art, in, in antiques. So research is something that I've spent a lot of my time on, a lot of my life on, and I've spent a lot of my time thinking, thinking about why do we do things? Why, why do we collect? Why do people pay more for things that seem to have a lot of obvious age? What is the attraction of antiques? For me, antiquity brings with it an almost sacredness. Objects seem to be imbued with a special character given to them by age and from having been handled, having been touched by people over many, many years and sometimes many generations. The patina of an item, the patina being the depth of, of the surface from handling and touching and the colour that it has from age, the patina suggests not just the age but its past, its history and something of its former owners. Items that have been handled or used in some past age are a tangible, direct and highly personal, personal link between us now and those who have gone before. Now we may not know the names or, or indeed anything about the past owners, but that anonymity for me seems to add to the attraction. Maybe we find it reassuring that the objects of others have survived when their owners have not. This suggests that a, perhaps a, a form of immortality is reserved for us all, and equally that we have a connection to the past and, and that we're not isolated in time, but, but we as individuals are part of some greater continuity. Inanimate objects can be seen as being imbued with a power or a potency. Few people, uh, even the most rational, would want to try on, for example, say a coat that had been worn by a notorious murderer. Most would uh, recoil at the offer. By the dint of the deeds of its past owner, such a coat is, is actually more than a coat. It's not a piece of clothing, it's beyond that. It takes on some of its past owner's character, sort of like, if you like, an aura by association. In the Sufi tradition, there is the, the concept of, of barakat, where objects associated with a revered individual are, are venerated as repositories of, of that person's charisma, maybe their power and their energy. Such objects become relics and are assumed to have talismanic or protective properties. This is actually very similar, of course, to, to what you have in, in uh, the Christian church. And in medieval times, there, there was a huge trafficking in saints' relics. Huge amounts of money were paid for you know, small bones of saints, pieces of the so-called true cross, uh, and, and other things that have had some sort of association with important early Christian figures. So in this way, inanimate objects are vested with the inan inanimate, and it's for this reason that antiques enjoy 
a reverence, I think, uh, among many people. Not, not all people. Some people just don't care. But for those who do collect, it's this, this reverence with the past uh, that, that, that is such an attraction and, and why I think patina, things with a very strong patina, a very good patina, attract a premium. Now the Javanese and the Balinese of Indonesia have this, uh, uh, or the concept of pusaka, or heirlooms, whereby objects that have been handed down within families take on almost a sacred aspect and are, and are imbued with talismanic properties. This is a very similar concept to, to what I was just talking about before. Now, possession of these sorts of Pusaka objects defines the owners and, and is essential for maintaining one's position and authority. It's as if these objects somehow channel a, like, a, like a cosmic life force which is marshaled from earlier generations. The head of the family that has, uh, that, well, the head of the family has that position uh, because of his ownership or her ownership or control of the Pusaka. Just as a, as a king or a Raja or a Sultan is head of his or her kingdom, because that person controls and possesses the kingdom's heirloom objects, the crown, the state, sword, and the beetle set, and, and so on. Now, whoever can wrestle away these regalia, Pesaka-type items, can then become the ruler by the fact of their possession. So the Pesaka are both signs of power, and, and they confer it. Now, this is quite the reverse of what you're used to in Europe, where because you're the king, you get the regalia, but in Southeast Asia, in many traditional societies, your possession of the regalia almost makes you the king. Artworks and antiques are always among the items targeted for capture in war by, by victors over the vanquished. This always interests me that when armies move in, uh, very often uh, one of the first things they want to do is to, to, to capture the art, raid the museums, take it all back to, to their capitals and so on. Often it's, it, it's not about the intrinsic worth of the items, it's more that the possession of a society's collective heirloom objects can be a means of conferring legitimacy on the new rulers or the, the conquerors. But also, it, it's a way of demonstrating the total defeat of the, of the vanquished. Not only has their land been captured, but it's as if their history has been taken from them as well. Certainly their material culture, which is the sort of the circumstantial evidence of their history as a people. And, and a people without a past can have little claim on the present or a future. So if you control the heirlooms, if you control the regalia, if you control the art and the pasaka, then you control the people. In fact, you practically own the people. In Europe, Napoleon removed the triumphal quadriga, the, the, the four bronze horses that adorn the Basilica of St. Marco in Venice in 1797. And he had them installed uh, before the Louvre in the Jardin de Carousel in Paris, after his army swept through northern Italy. But had the Venetians themselves not plundered the quadriga themselves uh, uh, during their sack of Constantinople in, in 1204? So, interestingly, the quadriga's journey around Europe followed shifts in political power. And so the statues were returned, of course, back to Venice after Napoleon was removed from power.
The removal of the cumulative art treasures of China's emperors by the defeated nationalist government is a, a it's another example. Chiang Kai-shek's forces fled the mainland to what became Taiwan in 1948. Three warships loaded, absolutely loaded with art treasures went with them. And they'd come already to the ports on, on trains and so on. It, it was a, a, a huge operation removing China's artworks, premium artworks, out to Taiwan. Now today these treasures are kept in a fortress-like museum. Uh, much of it is housed in a hillside on the outskirts of Taipei. It's a fascinating museum to, to go to, not only for the extraordinary artworks that are kept there, but, but also because of, of the manner in which they're kept. Uh, the museum being burrowed into the side of a hill, uh, it, it's supposed to be bomb-proof and whatever. So a lot of effort has gone into protecting this material culture of China. Now the nationalists sought to deprive the incoming communists of any legitimacy uh, that these possessions might confer. That's why they were so uh, so definite on taking these, these artworks out of mainland China and, and taking them with them to Taipei. It's as if they still retain their legitimacy as, as the rightful government of China because they possessed the art. Now, interestingly, the, the, the Chinese Communist Party has never actually sought to get these treasures back because they uh, always uh, claim that Taiwan belongs to China and so therefore, whilst these items are still on, on Chinese soil, they are in fact still in their possession. Another example, the, the Third Reich seizure of art and antiques is, is very well known. Hitler plundered the art and the antiques of the lands that he conquered and famously took it from the people, the Jewish people and, and, and so on. And he intended to install much of the artworks that had been stolen in a new museum which was to be called the Führer Museum in Linz, the Austrian city of Hitler's birth. The museum would have functioned like a grand trophy cabinet but also it represented a way of establishing the Third Reich as the keepers of the culture. It was an, an attempt to, to confer legitimacy and a demonstration of possession and, and thus control. And also, of course, to delegitimize de the, the power and, and the, the right to power of, of others, of the vanquished. Another example, the deliberate removal by the Dutch of the, uh, the heirloom krises, you know, the wavy bladed swords and, and so on that are so important as parts of the regalia of the Rajas of Bali in the early 20th century, provides a, an, another example of this stripping away of the artworks and, and uh, the heirlooms of, of, of other cultures to delegitimize the, the old rulers. The legitimacy of the Rajas was seen by the local population uh, as in part being conferred on them by their possession of the regalia, the krises, the, the, the sacred betel nut sets and so on. Which, and these were, were not only a source of prestige, but as I mentioned earlier, they were the source of power on account of uh, their perceived magical properties. Now the removal of these items from Bali to Batavia, which is now known as Jakarta, was one of the methods that the colonial Dutch used to supplant the rule of the Rajas on Bali with, with their own rule. Today, the regalia 
um, from Bali remains housed in the National Museum in Jakarta and rarely does the central government of Indonesia allow the items uh, from the various former Balinese states to be returned to Bali even for temporary exhibitions. It's as if uh, the government of Indonesia today is still operating like a colonial power on, on the many cultures that today comprise Indonesia. So do we, as collectors, feel more powerful because of our possession of our collections? And if we add to those collections, do our feelings of power or worth of having, um, of having carved out a legitimate place on, on the earth which we occupy, does it grow? Quite simply, in many cases, I feel the answer is yes. Build a collection and you are kind of building your own fiefdom. It's as if you are building your own kingdom. Collectors are in possession of the regalia of their own kingdoms that they're making. In a sense, we are all custodians of Pasaka. Perhaps the Pasaka might belong to other cultures and so on. But by gathering it together and owning it, it's as if we are drawing on a, like a power source. Some sort of legitimacy and also some sort of connection to the past and some sort of, in a sense, immortality. Now in practical terms, what constitutes a collection? A collection is composed of objects that bear an intrinsic relationship to each other rather than being valued for their own qualities. So that's what a collection is as opposed to just a, a whole lot of objects put together. The addition of a new piece tends to enhance the value of the existing pieces by further developing this broader, wider context. The constellation of objects projects control, authority and ownership, but also, not, not just that, but, but also scholarship and, and connoisseurship. Oddly, rarity can actually harm the collectability of certain items. Some artists, for example, are simply not sufficiently prolific to develop a wide collector base. And some collecting fields are too small and are unable to confer up enough objects, enough items to provide sufficiently regular satiation for collectors. I mean, it, it's very hard to collect in an area which is uh, composed of items that are so rare that you can almost never buy things. Consequently, collectors will, will tend to move on to fields populated by enough accessible objects to allow them to develop a collection. I mean, this is one reason why Picasso is so popular as, as, a, as a collected artist, because he painted so much. It, it, there's a lot to be had. Some artists actually uh, painted so little that uh, they uh, sell at a relative uh, lack of premium because it, it's just actually too hard to access their works and you don't, you, it, it's going to become too hard to meaningfully put together a, a, a collection. But then why collect, even in areas when, when it's easier to collect? Why do this? The paradox of collecting, I think, is that it's all about material goods and material culture, but the practice of collecting is anything but materialistic. One might appear greedy in pursuit of a collection, but greed is a term that misdiagnoses the condition as I see it. Collecting gives collectors purpose. 
to them, they are often building a monument as far as they are concerned. But you might well ask, isn't collecting simply heaping together the output of the labour of others? Well, I would argue, no, not, not at all. The artistry, the intellectual input of collecting comes from the curating. There's a lot of decision-making and research that goes into whether you should have this object or that object and adding it to your collection. One could argue, I suppose, that, that collecting is like building a tower. The bricks have been made by others, but it is, it is the construction that is the achievement. In this way, collectors are kind of like architects. Architects don't make the bricks, but they do put together the overall structure, just like collectors do. So the inclination, the sourcing, the research and the quality control, these are all factors that involve discretion, decisions, decision-making on the part of the collector. Many private collectors are thus able significantly to add to our, and when I say our, I mean the world's total stock of knowledge about the past. The information offered up by an object grows when it's in the presence of others. Like I was saying before, the context is constantly improved in a collection with the addition of new objects, particularly when they're well chosen. Collecting also offers a refuge. Collections are highly personalised and, and idiosyncratic, which for the collector is an attraction. A collection provides tangible markers for a space or territory. In the collector's mind, a private inner world to inhabit. The passion that drives serious collectors is, is highly addictive. I know that as a dealer um, and a collector myself, but sometimes I think this is why we call art dealers dealers. It's almost as if um, we're dispensing drugs to our clients. <laughs> um, and indeed, many clients are kind of like drug addicts, to, to be honest. Uh, they often need a hit. Sometimes it's every few weeks. The thrill, the adrenaline of acquisition gives a, a kind of like a glow of satisfaction uh, and, and certainly a, a glow of possession. But soon the new item is incorporated into the collector's everyday reality and the buzz of new acquisition subsides and it's long, not long before another hit is needed. But this is only part of it. Why do you collect? For every collector you ask this of, you will get a different answer or no answer at all. Sometimes people <laughs> can't even explain. Some people are just wired up to collect. But then for others, it's, it's a much more intellectual pursuit. Now, as we all know, not everyone is a collector. It's unclear why some do and, and others don't. Many collectors know that they have always been a collector. They recount childhood collections of postal stamps, coins and seashells and feathers and things like that. The decision to collect in later life has many possible triggers. Um, inheritance is one, a, a small collection might be inherited and the descendant chooses to grow the collection. Travel is another, some collectors collect items that relate to places they've been uh, throughout their lifetimes. Um, this sort of goes beyond souvenir hunting, hunt, hunting. It, it's, um, it's the travel that has engendered um, the interest for purchases in later life. Wealth, of course, is an obvious factor. Um, many collectors uh, kind of lie dormant for a lot of their lives, 
waiting for the means to collect, waiting for the income uh, to, to collect. Uh, one sort of interesting example of this could well be uh, when the Suez Canal was closed and that saw a huge increase in, in, in wealth of, of say Greek shipping owners. They, they, overnight they, they become very rich and suddenly quite a few of them um, amassed competitively very great art collections. Collectors usually collect in a given field for a few decades rather than across an entire lifetime. One reason is that many cannot reconcile the prices they must pay today compared with the prices they paid when they first began collecting. However, when it comes to rare and desirable objects, it's usually the case that whatever feels expensive today will prove to be cheap in a few years' time. I have to remind my, many of my clients this. Many collectors claim they don't collect for investment, but uh, you know, let's face it, that's probably slightly disingenuous for, for many. Most will always keep an eye on market values. But I think what they mean is that investment is not their main reason to collect. And I, I certainly think that is true. Indeed, um, at the back of many collectors' minds, I suspect, is that their passion probably is a folly. But if they keep an eye on rising prices, then a rational intent can be superimposed on what otherwise might be quite irrational. So they, they want to collect, but if they can pass it off as an investment, then that'll keep themselves happy in a rational way and, and certainly their spouses. But of course, a few collectors ever really intend to sell. It, it really goes against the nature of collecting. Now the history of collecting and the history of, uh, of the art market are, are not really the same thing, particularly because a, a, a true collector buys often a generation or so ahead of the art market. Now this, this is really important. Great collections are not built up when the collector must compete with everyone else and, and when many of the important pieces have already gone into other private collections or into museums. True collectors don't follow fashions. True collectors are trailblazers. They're not followers, generally. It, it, now this is a key aspect of the curatorial component. Because a true collector is often making a market and certainly making a contribution by identifying an under-collected area, doing the research and putting, putting, putting together a, a collection, thereby creating something for all of us and creating new knowledge that probably didn't exist before. Collecting often has a public dimension. Many uh, collectors dream of lending to a museum for many others, real pleasure is to be had from sharing their collection with well-informed others, other collectors. Another motive, uh, uh, perhaps a form of exhibition, is the intention to write a book on their collection, or even just to have a single owner auction if they do have to sell one day, and, and maybe the catalogue uh, can almost uh, double as, a, as a, essentially a book on, you know, a, a chronicle of that collection. The importance of private collectors and the care that they take up, uh, sorry, the, 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 the care that they take in building up their collections 
really cannot be underestimated. You know, many of the world's great museum collections are in fact compilations of important private collections curated over decades by private collectors using their own money rather than, say, taxpayers' money. Um, it is these collections that have proved such important infusions to public museums. And indeed, many of the world's truly great museums, such as the British Museum or, or the Metropolitan Museum of Art and so on, they would not exist barely at all without the efforts of these private collectors. Uh, and, and, and not just their efforts, not just their money, but their knowledge and also their judgment, their, their private curatorial efforts. Now, what's the role of, of dealers in all of this? Well, dealers, they, of course, they play an important role. As middlemen, they unite buyers and sellers. That's always important. But they also supply information to the marketplace. They hunt down items that have been often given the wrong attributions and might otherwise languish, lost to the particular field. And, and this is a really important role. It's that, that research role, that identification role of finding objects that are, have been lost. Lost because people have forgotten what they are. This so-called rescuing of objects adds to our understanding of the past and preserves the quantity of worthy objects available for future generations to learn from and to enjoy. Dealers bring to the market countless objects that otherwise might have been forgotten about. Good dealers are themselves curators in, and, and in many instances have better knowledge than those in museums simply because of the volume of items that they see and handle and often because it's their money that they risk when they decide to purchase rather than the funds of others. Now, the London art dealer in Chinese art, Giuseppe Eskenazi, recalls a speech given by Sherman Lee, the, the very uh, famous and almost legendary director of the Cleveland Museum of Art, to celebrate that museum's 50th anniversary in 1966. Eskenazi says, The most memorable part of that dinner was Sherman Lee's speech after the dinner when he thanked the various dealers who had helped the museum acquire so many important objects. His closing words were, quote, when a curator comes back from a trip and says, look what I have found, I say to him, remember, a dealer found it before you. And, of course, it remains the case that a dealer is really a collector who cannot afford to keep all that he collects. Quite often in my case, uh, a, a client might come to my gallery and, and will say, gosh, you know, I'd buy that if I could afford it. And my usual stock response is, is to say, well, if I could afford to, I wouldn't sell it. So the profit is in the knowledge and the scholarship, often for, for a good dealer. And the objects provide the means for, for this. And of course, as we all know, it, it's the stories that sell an object. That's really important. It's the stories. We have objects because they are almost like circumstantial evidence for discrete packages of history, discrete packages of things that have happened in time. And collectors and dealers are assemblers of stories and there is nothing materialistic about that. 
You have been listening to the World Art Now podcast in association with Michael Backman Limited. To hear more, visit worldartnow.com.